Hi, I'm Karen Rolfe, and welcome to Horse Training in Harmony. This podcast is about you making progress with your horse in a way that you both can love. It's about learning how to move and be in harmony, because yes, you really can develop a horse to be both athletic and happy. When we show up as our best selves for our horses, our horses will show up for us. So let's get started. In this episode, I'll be talking about the most important factor to our riding success. And that factor is ourselves. <laughs> you know, we, we all spend a lot of time thinking about you know, what our horses need to do for us and, you know, what a good, correct horse needs to be like and look like. But we really do have to um, look at ourselves as a top priority here. You know, being a good rider is something that's always evolving. We never really arrive and we're never really done. And as a matter of fact, when things go really well, great riders will often feel like the more they know, the more they know how little they know. Isn't that encouraging? <laughs> you know, and we're always only as good as our last ride. So it is an ongoing study in being a good rider. You can't just stick a stamp on it like, I achieved it, I'm done. So in this episode, I'm going to be answering the question, what makes a good rider? And I think the answer might be different than what you're expecting. I'll also share a good rider's pledge at the end of this episode, and I will invite you to take the pledge. So here we go. Episode one, what makes a good rider? You know, before we get right into it, I just have to take a second to celebrate. This is episode one of my first podcast, and I love listening to podcasts and learning from podcasts. I listen in my car, I listen around the house. I find them such a great way to learn. So thank you for being here. Uh, just know that it is my goal to be an extremely valuable use of your time. Now, I've been doing this for a while. I've been teaching and training since the late 80s. Uh, my book came out in 2008. My video classroom was released in 2010. I have been doing this a while and I still get excited about firsts. I also get excited about um, seconds and thirds and fourths and fifths, right? I'm one of those people who loves beginnings and I love middles and I love endings, uh, which is why I'm so busy. But as an example, uh, just before I came in here to do this podcast, I got so excited because I was looking at my little pond that I have and there's tadpoles in the pond. And I noticed that some of the tadpoles were growing little legs. And so I found myself uh, I'm, I'm 55 years old and I'm squatting next to my little pond. I have a bachelor's of science in biology and I'm there looking in the pond going, oh my God, I see little toad legs. <laughs> 
And then I came in here and now I'm doing episode number one of my first podcast. So I think the message is you're never too old to get excited and it's never too late to start something new. Okay. Now let's go back to what makes a good writer. So on one of the weekly Q&A calls that we have for my, one of the courses in my virtual arena, a student asked me, what makes a good writer? And how do I know if I'm a good writer when I'm writing all by myself most of the time? My answer surprised her a little. Uh, she, I think she expected that I was going to give her a, kind of a, a checklist of uh, movements that she would need to be able to perform uh, and movements that her horse would need to be able to perform. And, you know, I know maybe a protractor to measure all the correct angles on a photograph that she took of herself. You know how that happens on, on Facebook. You know, let's rip apart this horse and rider. <laughs> but that's not what I did. I didn't give her a perfect shape. I didn't give her a list of things she needs to be able um, to perform. I did give her a list of other qualities. So I'm going to share that list with you right now. All right. So qualities of a good writer, and I'm going to put little air quotes around the word good. Those were the words that she used when she asked the question. I tend to not really love using the words good or bad, right or wrong, because I think life is a little more fuzzy and blurry and overlapping. And I think as humans, we can tend to be on the judgmental side of things anyway, and it rarely serves us. But to use the language she used, uh, qualities of a good writer. Here we go. One thing is that your horse understands you and your priority is clear communication. And I think I'll just read the list and then we'll go back and revisit these. There's six things on the list. Second thing is, you do your best to see things from your horse's perspective. Third, you don't act from ego. Fourth, you don't take your frustrations out on your horse. Fifth, you're able to follow that which you asked your horse to do. And sixth, your horse sees you as trustworthy. The way I arrived at this list was by thinking about how do I decide when I'm going to let a rider, a particular person, ride or be with or take care of my horses. Now, I came from a training barn in New York where, you know, there were horses in training. I was riding other people's horses. Uh, there were lesson horses, school horses. Um, my trainer was very generous. She let lots of people ride her horses. So I came from an environment where um, lots of people, lots of horses were ridden by lots of different people. And I actually think that that's, it can be really valuable. But when I got my own place and kind of built my little beautiful horse bubble that I, <laughs> that I live in right now, I found that I became a little bit, a little bit, um, maybe I'll say selfish. Uh, <laughs> I was very particular about who handled my horses and who rode my horses. It was a little gift to myself that I'm saving every little drop of my horses for myself. Um, 
so that's how I answered the question. I thought, well, what makes a good rider? Who, how do I decide who I would trust with my horses? And that's, that's where, how I came up with these criteria because I realized that uh, who I choose to ride my horses had less to do with their level of experience and it had more to do with a mindset, um, a, a natural prioritizing of things with the horse, uh, and that's what this list is. So to prioritize that you're, you have clarity of communication and that your horse understands you. So what's the opposite of that? The opposite of that would be that you're always controlling your horse. Right. So now we want to be able to control our horse. This is just, this is true. If there's somebody on my horse and the horse is running for a highway, I would like that person to be able to get it to turn. <laughs> so for safety, for everybody's safety, we need to be able to control our horses. This is for sure. However, the goal should still be communication and understanding. And that's what the training goal is. The training goal isn't, can I make my horse do these things, even if he doesn't understand and doesn't want to? No, the goal is, can I train my horse so that when I give a cue, he goes, I know what to do, <laughs> right? So that's what I mean by that. And it might seem simple and obvious, but there's a difference between control and communication. And if you start to notice, when are you just controlling? And when are you giving the horse an opportunity to respond, an opportunity to show you what he thinks you mean, then you have an opportunity to see really what your, your training results are and you get a chance to modify. Um, so start to pay attention to that. Some of you know, will know exactly what I mean by that. But see if you can understand and notice when you're in control mode and when you're in communication mode. And we'll, I'm sure we'll have more podcasts where we, we talk about that. And in, in my video classroom that I mentioned earlier, I uh, have plenty of videos on that. I'll leave, um, I'll leave links to that in the show notes if you go to the, this episode on my, on my website. So the second one is to do your best to see things from your horse's perspective. So what does that look like? That looks like if things are starting to go wrong or not working out the way you want, that you don't have a knee-jerk reaction to go, hey, <laughs> you dumb horse, <laughs> you know, behave. That you stop for a second and go, huh, I wonder why he's doing that. Like, what's he seeing? Or why, why does he keep responding like that? And it just gives that, that second to... to um, to be basing your thought on that horses do things for a reason. I find in my experience, horses always, do, they always have a reason for what they do. Sometimes it doesn't make sense to us, but there always is some sort of reason. So um, when there's a person who's not trying to see things from the horse's perspective, then usually things that are going wrong are always framed as disobedience or acting out or he's doing it to me, or something like that. So the people around my horses, 
Um, I would like them to stop and go, huh, wait, what's going on? Why is he doing that? What could he be experiencing, seeing, feeling, you know, what happened right before we did this? And, and looking at things like that, instead of going quick to blame, quick to punishment, quick to writing it off as um, a disobedience. And that really um, blends right into the third one, which is don't act from ego, right? So when you're acting from ego, you're always taking it personally. You're always seeing it as a me versus the horse and I'm on top and the horse is um, down below. Well, if you're riding, hopefully you are on top and the horse is down below. But you're always seeing it as kind of a dominating kind of attitude. You're taking it personally if the horse isn't doing what you ask. Um, when you're acting from ego, you can often... Um, easily start to judge yourself, right? So we're not always, people acting from ego are, aren't just blaming the horse. They're usually beating themselves up also. And we don't want to do that. That doesn't serve anybody. Uh, you can also easily feel um, embarrassed or something like that. Gosh, you know, being in a dressage training barn for so many years, it's like if your horse came off the bit, it was like, oh, Karen's horse is off the bit. God forbid, you know, cue gasp. <laughs> and and you start going, oh my God, this is embarrassing. My horse isn't going perfectly. Uh, and, and that doesn't serve anybody, I promise you. So to put your ego aside, humbleness is a great quality to have if you're with horses, because <laughs> if you're not feeling humble, I promise you, you'll meet a horse that will make sure you do. <laughs> so just coming from that perspective of you know, let's see what we can do. Let's, let's give the horse the benefit of the doubt. Remember, it's our responsibility to explain this to the horse. So it's on us. And this goes beautifully into the next one, which is don't take out your frustrations on your horse. So again, if we're not, um, if we're not seeing things from a horse's perspective, if we're trying just to manhandle and control and then we're not understanding why our horse is being so strong or heavy or spooky or whatever it is. Now we're feeling um, embarrassed or like we're not good enough or something that's ego driven or we have to make him look good, you know, so that he's other people aren't, you know, if other people are watching us, it's easy to get frustrated. And I, you know, humans, when, when we get frustrated, we have to admit it, we tend to take it out on other things and people. We tend to blame. I mean, maybe not you guys, but it happens. <clears throat> I know it happens to me. I know what frustration feels like, but I do my best to recognize when it's frustration coming up, to notice, and to go, all right, if I'm feeling frustrated, it must mean something's not working. It must mean I'm not choosing the right thing to do. Something's missing. And the best thing I can do is stop go, this is getting frustrating. <laughs> name it. I find it so powerful to name it. I'm feeling frustrated. And then go sit in the shade for a minute and think, I wonder why. Why isn't it working? What am I not doing? How could I do something better? I love to ask my horse how I can help them. So if you get frustrated, just stop for a second, get off, sit on, sit on the side of the arena for a second, go horse, how can, how can I help you? <laughs> uh, 
how can I help you with this? That's one of the most immediate ways to turn around frustration. Ask an empowering, helpful question, right? Now your brain is going to be trying to figure out how can I help <laughs> instead of just sitting there going, ah, right? Okay. So that's a lot of mindset stuff. There's a reason that that's on the top of the list. But there are some physical components too, right? So this isn't all just about um, fluffy mindset stuff. Some of you might not be into the woo-woo stuff. This isn't woo-woo. This is practical advice. Mindset matters. Where you're coming from matters. But also there's some physical skills that are important too. So that's what number five is for. You're able to follow that which you asked your horse to do, right? So if you are unbalanced on your horse, so you ask them to do something and then you flop over to the other side, or you're asking your horse to go, but you're losing your balance, so you're balanced on the reins at the same time, it's conflicting. We have to be able to follow whatever we asked our horse to do. And that, that's practice, right? You got to put the time in got to develop the seat, develop the balance, develop the hands that can be steady and that can follow. But you know, there's a mindset piece to this part too. I know there's a lot of riders that I've worked with that have maybe a horse that has a history of being explosive or a little sassy and they'll have trouble picking up the canter. And I'll be watching and I kind of go, it looks like you're asking to canter, but you kind of don't want your horse to canter at the same time, right? So they're, they're asking, they're saying, please canter. And at the same time, part of their, their mind is going, oh my gosh, I hope he doesn't really go. <laughs> or I hope he doesn't go too much. Go, but not too much, right? So that's a conflict. So there is a, a mental part of that criteria also, that you're able to follow that which you asked your horse to do. It's not fun to be asking your horse to do something that you deep down don't really want them to do or that you're afraid that they do it. And it's no fun to ride or be ridden by, you know, a rider who can't have their own self-carriage. You know, when, when I was back in New York at that training facility, we had a lot of working students coming over and um, most of them were, were from Sweden um, other parts of Europe too, but my trainer is Swedish, uh, Anne Gribben, so she brought lots of Swedish working students over, and we used to call them the Swedish bush riders, because they'd come in, and a lot of them just had, you know, what would, if you took a picture of it, it'd be like, that's a terrible position, but um, they could follow, so maybe they weren't refined, maybe they were a little slumpy, maybe they were a little floppy, but they were balanced enough and they were confident enough that they could follow. And so we would, you know, kind of chuckle at them, oh, look at those, you know, bush riders, we got to really turn them around. But I noticed that the horses loved to be ridden by them. So mental note, right? The position is less about a perfect looking shape, and it's more about the functioning of it. And that's why in this list, I didn't say criteria number five, you have a perfect seat. Yeah. What's perfect though? Perfect looking, 
right? There's plenty of riders that I've seen who have very picture-perfect looking positions, but they can't follow. They're holding on, they're stiff, they're afraid, they're using conflicting aids. And as I said, there's riders who have very rough looking positions, rough meaning unrefined, not rough to the horse. But the men have very unrefined positions, yet they can follow whatever they ask their horse to do. So the final one, your horse sees you as trustworthy. And the way I wrote that is by design. It's not that the horse trusts you. I didn't write the horse trusts you because then that kind of puts it on the horse. Well, that horse better trust me. <laughs> I haven't done anything to him. <laughs> he should trust me. I wrote it as your horse sees you as trustworthy so that if your horse is not trusting you, it's on us. You know, I said you. If if my horse doesn't trust me, that's on me. I'll put it, I'll put it that way. <laughs> All right. So it's a reminder that we always have to look at ourselves. Excellent riders will look to themselves. What am I doing? What am I doing to cause my horse to not trust me? Sometimes we're not doing anything. Sometimes we're being great. We just have to get to know that horse. I have a horse that's new to me this year. And I'm still working on gaining his trust. It's slow. He's had some reasons to not trust humans in the past. But I'm not going to blame the horse. It's on me. And I know that I have to build that trust. And so all of the things on this list, you, know, you can go down them and check them off and, and see if you are able to do them. But what's really cool about this list of priorities too is it will start to drive your decision-making, right? So when you're with your horse, if you have these in your mind, it's going to change the choices that you make in any given moment, especially, especially when things are not going so well. So it's easy for many riders to seem to be good riders when things are going well, but the real measure is when things are not going so well, what do you do? And that's when I realized that I wanted somebody with my horses that if things weren't going well, they would go, huh, I wonder why my horse isn't understanding what I'm saying. How could I be clearer? That someone would go, I wonder why he's acting like that. What else is going on in the environment? Or, you know, what was going on earlier? Did he, did he finish his grain today? Is he feeling well? Right? Instead of pushing through that they're going to put their ego aside and make decisions that are for the horse and not for their own glory, that they're not going to get mad and frustrated and punish my horse for it, that they're not going to get in the way, that they're not going to ask for things that they can't follow, right? That they'll do rising trot. They'll get into two point if the horse starts trotting bigger than they can sit. And that they're always asking themselves, how can I be more trustworthy and a better partner in the eyes of my horse, that person I can trust my horses with. And there's something cool about these qualities also is, like I said, they're, they're independent of level, right? So um, you, you could be a training level rider and maybe be the person that I choose to be with my horses over a Grand Prix rider who doesn't have these qualities. Right? So it's possible to, to have almost no education or advanced education in horses and be and have these qualities that I just said 
and it's possible to be a Grand Prix rider and not have these qualities. And I wouldn't let that Grand Prix rider anywhere near my horses. So this also reminds me of the object of dressage according to the FEI when they write, you know, what the criteria are for horses. So I thought that I would share that because there's a similar dynamic that you can achieve the object of dressage with horses way before your advance in your level. So I never miss a chance to share uh, this object of dressage. The object of dressage is the development of the horse into a happy athlete through harmonious education, resulting in a horse that's calm, loose, supple, and flexible, but also confident, attentive, and keen, thus achieving perfect understanding with his rider. Now you can look that up. It's Article 401 in the Dressage Rulebook. And just like I said, with the criteria for an excellent rider, those ob that object of dressage can be met in the first moments that you're you're just beginning to ride, and you're that's training level. It's it doesn't say that the object of dressage is to do fifteen one tempies, right? The object of dressage is all those things listed in that object of dressage. You can do that right away, and in fact. You must do it right away. If you're not focusing on those qualities, you're not doing dressage, right? You can't fight and push and kick and pull and get to Grand Prix and then, look, I did Grand Prix. Now I'm meeting the object of dressage. No. The, the idea is you achieve that object of dressage early. That's what makes it doing dressage. And for you non-dressage riders out there, remember, dressage just means training. So, this applies to you if you're jumping or doing Western or endurance. Those are all good. We, I'm sure that's, those are all qualities that you'd love to have in your horse. So you achieve it early and you take it with you. And as you go up the levels, it's going to be tested. It's going to be challenged. But at every level, as you learn every new movement, as the, as the, you know, the demands get higher if you're not immediately winding back and checking, do I still meet the object of dressage at second level? Do I still meet the object of dressage at third level, fourth level, Grand Prix? Right? That's the goal that we have it all. So the same thing with riders. All of the, the things on that list that I read you, those can be achieved immediately. Some people, they're just born with that. That's their natural tendency, you know, and then they have to learn how to follow the horse and sit with them and develop that independent seat and the excellent hands and balance as they have to jump higher jumps, <laughs> cut faster cows, <laughs> right? Stay longer on the, you know, endurance or rougher terrain or up the dressage levels. And, you know, that might sound like obvious, and of course you do that, but you know what? It, it's harder when you're advancing and you have more expectations, when you're a professional and the demands are higher, you demand more of yourself, your clients demand more of you, you might be on a team and they're demanding more of you. Whew, that's 
that's when you really need to have the habit of practicing being an excellent rider and being there for your horse. So start early, start now so that you can take it with you and you know how to check your ego and check your frustrations and see things from your horse's perspective every step of the way because you can have both. You can be an excellent rider and stay an excellent rider even under the demands. You can achieve the object of dressage with your horse during the easy stuff and be calm, loose, supple, flexible, confident, attentive, and keen with perfect understanding and happy even when doing a Grand Prix test. So I believe that. If I didn't believe that, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be doing this anymore. Dressage is too hard. <laughs> if I didn't think we could, you know, feel like we're, we're in these yummy moments with our horses, you know, all the way up those levels, then, you know, why bother? It's, it's got to be fun for me and the horse. So I think the key is not to strive so hard to accomplish and become that you end up like putting your head down, pushing onward only to look up years from now and go, what the heck am I doing? <laughs> How did I get here? What have I become? And I meet lots of students like that. I meet a lot of students who maybe were in more traditional training and then they looked up one day and they went, my horse and I are not having any fun at all. <laughs> Let's let's review. And then they come to me because I do things a little differently. So for anybody who's listening, for the novice or amateur riders out there, remember the most important judge of your riding is your horse. With so many systems out there, so many different ways to train, at the end of the day, all your horse wants to know is what are you asking him to do? And he wants you to make it easy for him. And for all the experienced riders out there, remember, the most important judge of your riding is your horse, not the score sheet, not the top rail of the jump, not the whatever else it is that you're measuring. Your horse just wants to know what you want him to do, and he wants you to make it easy for him to do it. So now it's time to take the pledge. So I hope you'll do this with me. I'll say it nice and slow so you can maybe even repeat it out loud. Why not? So here's the Good Riders Pledge. You can raise your right hand if you want, but you don't have to, especially if you're driving. I pledge to communicate clearly so my horse understands me. I pledge to do my best to see things from my horse's perspective. I pledge to not act from ego, but instead from empathy and humbleness. I pledge to not take my frustrations out on my horse. I pledge to do my best to follow that which I asked my horse to do. I pledge to be trustworthy to my horse. If this episode resonates with you, make sure you subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening. Training horses is a long game. The more you listen, 
the more pieces of the puzzle you'll have. To see all your learning resources, visit dressagenaturally.net. That's where you'll find free videos, online courses, my book. You can sign up for my Wednesday Wisdom email or even book a private consult. Most of all, remember, you got this. Never underestimate the possibility for things to improve in ways you cannot yet imagine. Till next time, love your horse, move in harmony, and enjoy the process. Mm -hmm.